Thank you. Can I commend these two books to you? We've got uh, four weeks in Advent and then we'll carry on into our Christmas services using um, not their material so much but their themes. And um, the first week of emotionally healthy relationships, the theme is really about loving well. And I, I like what he says here. I think if you don't hear anything else, this is day one, week one. Loving well is the essence of true spirituality. It requires experiencing connection with God and with others and with oneself. It begins, however, with our response to God's invitation to practice his presence in our daily lives. He then invites us to practice the presence of other people with an awareness of his presence. Kind of get that? He's active. God's active. But learning to practice his presence is no small task. Let's see where we go. There's not one original thought in this talk this morning because I've been hammered. So this is the talk of a hammered person, but there's some good stuff here. It's 17 years at the beginning of next year that I first arrived in here, here in a fairly bedraggled date, a state, I should say, and I found a community that was in a fairly uh, bedraggled state. And it dawned on me actually studying this passage this week that I might have actually wasted the first 10 years. I might have actually wasted the first 10 years. Now, I'll consider that on the way through. But look, let's just say, as John, thank you for reminding us, uh, probably one of the three most known Bible passages um, in the Scriptures. The 23rd Psalm, John 3.16, and this would just about uh, summarise us. It's familiar and it's famous, and so we must know what it means, mustn't we? <laughs> mustn't we? You know, don't our eyes mist up because here we are at another wedding and this is being read. By the way, I discovered that the average uh, duration of an Australian wedding, um, they thought it was seven years, actually 13 years at the moment. So that's uh, not the worst thing, but there are very complex reasons why they came up with that number, some of them not very good. And I don't know about you, but as I think about this passage that we all assure uh, that we know what it means, I find myself living in what I call two parallel worlds. So I do live in this world with many of you where I just, I, I just do see beautiful acts of love and care and concern and compassion and commitment. I see that. And then there's this other world um, that parallels it at the same time where I see hate and selfishness and evil. And of course, scripture has a name for that. Sin is the name for that ness, whatever the ness is, the selfishness, the self-righteousness, the, all those nesses that, that are part of that sin thing. And we discover that this love that the Bible talks about can feel quite elusive, it does to me, because it's as though everywhere we go we're kind of... <laughs> in this parallel world, and it's like we're infected with a virus. There's a virus, oh yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? But it's the sin virus, and we're born with it, so we kind of learn to live with it, and it lives within us. 
but it distorts everything. And I think, how can I get cured from this? And that's a pretty biblical idea in Romans. Paul spends a lot of time. How do I get cured from this virus? And how do I live a life free from this reckless virus? In other words, how do I sort of live an anti-sin kind of life as I look around me? The sin imperfection impacts much more than just being good. So a lot of people say, I just want to be good, I want to be a good bloke. I met good blokes everywhere. In fact, you know the one thing that they say is it typifies the case of domestic violence murder. But he was a good bloke. Like, what the heck? Can you see the problem? He was a good bloke. So if being a good bloke, being a good girl bloke, um, keeping the rules, in other words, um, is the deal, uh, then it's not resolving the fundamental parallel universe problem that we have and we live in. The anti-sin Christian life isn't a good life. It's not as living a good life where we keep the rules that we don't keep anyway, are keeping the rule life. It's actually a life of love. It's a love life. So why do you think I might have wasted the first 10 years at St Philip's? Well, because of this. In my 2004, it's 2004, yes, that long ago, in my discerning state sitting in Rod Eagleton, Rod and Sue sit down there at the 7.30 service, I was sitting in Rod Eagleton's car, and I've told you this before, up in the Broome Napier Street roundabout, I definitely had an experience where I had this strong inner sense that I was to, quote, go and love those people. Go and love those people. Now, if you're the sort of kind of doesn't like people who hear things and thinks they're a bit kooky, this is fair enough, but it's actually a really biblical idea, this notion of going and loving people. It's not just, you know, it would be a Bible idea. So 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to do it. John 3 tells us to do it. Matthew 22 that we had read tells us to do it. 1 John's full of it. So in other words, it's a Bible idea that I got up on the corner there uh, to go and love those people. And we discover that to love well is the greatest expression of the Christian life. We hear it in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. And now faith, hope and love abide, but the greatest of these is to love and to love well. But I confess I thought that was a bit simplistic. You know, it's a bit low bar. Not very successful, pioneering growthful, entrepreneurial. I wanted to grow a church, not love a church. I wanted to succeed and achieve something, not dally about with lesser things. Can't you be stupid along the way? I had many things to learn from God, as had these Corinthians. And chapter 13 is part of a conversation that the Apostle Paul had with this young church in Corinth. And so while we read this as this standalone passage, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, this is not a balm or a salve, this passage. This is a king-size kick up the pants. So quickly the story, then the bombshell, because there's a bombshell and a rebuke in it, and what God might be saying to us and to me. 
Well, the story is happening in Corinth, which is a very substantial city, or was a very substantial city on a spit of land. I think someone gave me the clicker, but I might need you, Jane. Just, just that's you know, it's it's another old city. Beside that was the on the top of that hill was the um, the pagan temple to the to a sex god S. So it was pagan and it was sex obsessed. We're not like that, of course. <clears throat> Um, not in Cottesloe. Corinth was the ideal place to make money um, simply because of... Jane, you've got the... um, I've got to turn it on, that would help. Simply because it sits on an isthmus. I love saying that. An isthmus. And if you think of a compass, north, south, east and west, Corinth has got north-south covered, the north of Greece and the south of Greece, but it's also got the oceans covered, east-west... Because if you wanted to get something from here around the other side, uh, it's thousands of kilometres, but it was only six kilometres across this isthmus. So it was very, made it very accessible. It was just the gold bullion place for trade, north, south and east and west. But in 146 BC, Corinth got smashed by the Romans, who were on the rise at the time, um, for being rebellious, disobedient and naughty. And for 100 years, it remained uh, levelled, raised to the ground. But Julius Caesar, who knew a good thing when he saw it, thought, this is a great place to put a garrison because we will get rich if we tax people as they go north, south and east and west through here. So literally, if you wanted to get something from the Saronic Gulf to the other side, you had to either sail thousands of kilometres or go six kilometres, transport it six kilometres across land to another ship. It was such a great place. So Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar uh, reinitiated a garrison because anybody who was there was going to make a lot of money. And then in the next 100 years, it exploded from nothing into one of the biggest cities in the world. And it was unique because it had no aristocracy, no tradition, and no native population. Do you know, it was really like a bit like Singapore under Lee Kuan Yew, I think, uh, you know, where they, he could, they could build their own culture and sort of look at it today. As a result, it was huge and densely populated, totally diverse, utterly multi-ethnic, And just like Mr Lee said, Singapore stands on three pillars. Singapore's for Singapore. Singapore believes in education. And if you think you can be corrupt, you're dead. And don't spit on the streets. Pretty simple. They were his three three pillars. As a result, this huge, densely populated, totally diverse, multi-ethnic city was bound together by one thing, to make it big, to be successful, to grow So people came to have success and to make money. And one historian said it was the most densely populated, dog-eat-dog, success-oriented, sex-obsessed city in the world. There was no other reason to be there. So they coined a verb to Corinthianise. It was a verb, it was a doing thing, which meant to live an utterly immoral life without any rules at all. So no one came there to live or to have a life. They came to make it and to do things. And then when Paul came there... He was just about finished. He was beaten. He was bashed up. He'd had a bad time in Athens and in Philippi that we've just left and he's been writing to and he loves so much. 
he'd been beaten almost to within an inch of his life. He was down, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but not quite out. And he was so low that in Acts chapter 18, God comes to him and in a particular appearance to him, oh good, I can have an appearance up on the corner there if Paul can in Acts 18, God basically says to him, I'm going to show you that I'm still with you. I'm going to encourage you and I'm going to do a major work and I'm going to plant a church in the biggest, baddest, woolliest city in the world. Corinth. I'm going to take the Corinthianizers and I'm going to make them Christians. So in the early part of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, we read this. Paul's making a list and he says, Adulterers, idol worshippers, homosexual prostitutes, the greedy, thieves and drunkards. Then he says... Such were many of you. Such were many of you. But you were justified, made right by the blood of Jesus, sanctified, set apart on the road of the Christian life in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit, the power of the spirit of our God. What Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians who were not posh or straight or moral They'd been everywhere and done everything. They'd swum in the sin virus, no end. But then because of the grace of Christ, they became Christians. What Paul is saying is that this is a unique place where God's done an extraordinary thing. And when people come from backgrounds like this, you get one of the oddest things when you get churches like this, and they're mostly urban churches um, in big cities, but the churches are more brilliant than normal suburban churches and more troubled. I had a friend, Paddy, and he uh, was the number two pastor in the biggest Anglican church in the north of England. In fact, it was the biggest church in the north of England. And he said, oh, you can always tell the difference between, between uh, a good small church and a good big church. And I said, what's that, Paddy? He said, oh, the size and number of its problems. so that's exactly what you have in Corinth so if you need to understand or want to understand what Corinth was like you just look at chapter 13 and particularly the first three verses because we meet these people who were aspirational wanted success they wanted growth and they'd come to make a difference so when they became Christians they were capable and motivated and some of them were brilliant and we see that they were they, what they valued. They valued, verse 1, being up the front. Although I speak in with tongue, the tongues of men and angels, they were auctioneers, they were facilitators, they ran consultancies, you know, that's why they wanted to be there, holding the room um, with rhetoric, uh, consulting, being highly regarded was valued. In verse 2, they were gifted. Prophecy, mysteries, knowledge, insight, smart, quick on their feet. They knew how to grasp an opportunity. And verse 3, some had faith that could move mountains. They were visionaries, changers of industries. They were entrepreneurs. And this is possibly Paul's most gifted church. Love? Poof. Wasn't why they were there. And, you know, many of us can look back on our lives, can't we? Why were we there? Success, growth, 
Make it. Be famous. Look at me. Love. Poof. When you get to verses 4 to 7, love is patient, kind, not puffed up, arrogant, rude, love is not rude, etc. Where did that list come from? You know, just try and, just try and think about it. You know, we've heard it for years. Where did Paul come up with that list? You know, was he just sitting around? And a few people in the church said, Paul, what's love? Well, unlikely. If you read 1 Corinthians carefully, the first 12 chapters, you see the same words in the list have been used elsewhere. In chapter 8, he calls them puffed up and proud. In chapter 10, verse 24, he says they're self-seeking. And that's the same word that he uses where it says love's not self-seeking. In chapter 7, he calls them rude. And that's the word he uses here. We see them going to lawsuits. They had immorality on a level that was, you know, really creative. It was so immoral. And Paul's in a quandary because his most brilliant church is deeply troubled. So he writes a letter and drops a bombshell in order to get their attention. So here's the bombshell. He says to them, you can have all that stuff all that gift and you can bring that gift inside the church and you can do amazing things and it adds up to nothing. (sighs) Mega church, mini church, doesn't matter. Nothing. Gong, clang, symbol. Now that's a bombshell, isn't it? How we measure life and success as Christian people. In fact, you can do all that stuff. It doesn't make you a Christian at all. Now, I have a slightly contentious view of spiritual gifts because that's the context here. It's talking about spiritual gifts. And you can take this or leave it and be... I love it when people disagree with me and they're they're allowed to be wrong. It's absolutely fine. Um... But I kind of figure that that when you look at what the Bible says, there are at least three major lists of spiritual gifts, and they're all a bit different. So different churches get different lists. You know, that's a bit weird. You'd think if there were spiritual gifts, they'd all be the same. And what it seems to be is that if you take gifts and talents that people are variously given, and then you apply the power and work of the Holy Spirit to that thing, Essentially, you submit it to the spirit of Jesus, it becomes a spiritual gift. The cool thing about that is if you're a lawyer and you submit the gift that lawyers need to God, bang, you've got a spiritual gift alive. If you're an entrepreneur, bang, you know, what if you consult and make a difference in a room trying to bring, if you do health and safety and you submit that, bang. All sorts of great stuff can happen. I think that's a far more constructive way to see spiritual gifts instead of arguing, is this a spiritual gift or not? Let's just give our gifts to Jesus in the power of the Spirit. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it seems to make sense to me. So realistically, it's less the gift is spiritual, it's who the gift has been relinquished to that makes it spiritual and empowers it. So whether it's cleaning or making money or music or song or speaking or facilitating or... But, you know, cooking, particularly baking, I think that's the one God's spirit's really on, is baking. Um, You know, hospitality, management, law, medicine, teaching, submitted to God can be spiritual in the nature of its gift and power. 
Some natural talents can make us look terrific, some not so much. But talents exercised without submission to the spirit may do some good, but they may do some harm. And that's what we're dealing with here. They may even make us look successful, but they won't achieve the purpose for which God ultimately gave them, which is to manifest a community under the rule of his love. His love. Power. Submitted to God under his control. So if I submit my gifts and talents to God in the power of the Spirit, all manner of things can be transformed. I don't have to actually be that good at it for it to be used of God. If our gifts and talents are unsubmitted, they achieve nothing spiritually. They might achieve lots of things in the world, but nothing spiritually. So Paul's saying to the Corinthians, friends, in this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, you're actually just like the pagans. You're banging around there and it adds up to nothing. It wasn't just Paul who identified this viral infection. Jesus did too. You remember Jesus said, on that last day, people will come to me and they'll say, I did this and that and the other thing. And I'll say to them, I never knew you. Here it is. Jesus saying it. We see it in the Old Testament in various places where, um, you know, Balaam, Balaam actually set out to be bad. But God used him anyway. Saul, we looked at him, remember? God came upon him and used him. What does it mean? Well, here's Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist, who, who wrote on this passage. And he wrote this, and I think it's really beautiful. Listen carefully. He says, a spiritual gift, whether it be miracles or speaking, doesn't change a person's inherent inner nature. A gift ability doesn't require a change of heart. Like, this is the thing, a change of heart, like love or holiness does. Gifts are like precious jewels that adorn us, but which do not alter the form of the body. They can just be a cover-up. But the grace of God and its fruit turns, as it were, the very soul into a precious jewel. That's what Paul's after for the Corinthians. Imagine if all that talent got imbued with a submission of Philippians 2, remember? Form of God, counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but applied all that entrepreneurship and success and capacity and gift submitted to the Holy Spirit. What would that look like? Paul's most talented church may be his most nothing church. That's a bombshell. So can you see why I wonder if I had not wasted the first 10 years that I spent at St Philip's? God said, go love. I said, go succeed. And what's truly frightening is that some of us actually don't care what, what God thinks. 
you're just getting busy with doing whatever you want and you hope God will come along for the ride. That's really scary. We just want to succeed irrespective of the spiritual impact. So there's a bombshell on a bombshell. And we may be in great spiritual danger. So just as I close, how do we apply that? Well, it applies really to three people. And the first group of people love sermons because they're really involved in the church and they're busy in the church and they do things and they run studies and they've got groups and they're active and they serve and they do all sorts of fantastic stuff. This is the first group. They like it when people give sermons because they're sitting there thinking, hmm, I hope so-and-so's hearing this. (laughs) Well, this one's for you, not (laughs) so-and-so. This one's for you, not so-and-so. Paul comes and says, if you think your gifts or your success or even your money or your commitment are like dials on a dashboard, you know, we dial the dashboard that tells you what's really happening inside the engine, you're wrong. The engine might be ready to blow up and we've got all these things happening, dials on the dashboard. Dear Christian friends, and I include myself, leaders, ministers, to get our identity from what we're doing instead of from Jesus, from Christ instead of Christianity, from Christianity instead of Christ, I must be doing something to say to ourselves, I have to be doing something to mean something. Gong, clash, bash. Nothing, exhaustion, spiritual death. Wow. Wow. You know, it's interesting. When I say to Cheryl, when I say to Cheryl, or she says to me, do you love me? I say, yes, I love you. I love you because that's death. I love you because you clean the church. I love you because you run a Bible study. That's, that's death in a friendship or a relationship. I love you because you can help me out. Or do you love me because I can help you out? That's death. The love gospel, the only gospel, says I love you, not because you're good or because of what you do, but because of my grace. I love you because I love you. And until... That's the sort of love that we understand needs to motivate anything that you do, or I do, where gong, bang, nothing. It's so easy to say, God loves me because, and this is spiritual death. It smothers grace. We're not drawing off his love, we're working off our gifts. And we need to think about that, ponder that and pray that God would fill us with a new 
identity. The second thing is a person who came to me straight after the 7.30 congregation in tears and they said, I know I'm not very gifted and I know it and I think about myself all the time and I think about what other people must think of me because I'm paralysed by an unwilling, unwillingness and an inability to do anything because I'm just selfing and what I'm not all the time. And please, I'm not critical of this. I'm not critical of any of these, actually. These are just realities that Jesus has come for to fill us with his love. And in some strange way, people are falling into falling prey to that very same mistake that Paul talks about here. If our gifts or skills or talents or lack of them are our yardstick in our faith, this is the thing you need to understand, if that's you. The thing is, do you realise that any gift or capacity is limited? It's limited. However skilled or gifted or talented someone is or you are, someone else always has more. Gifts have a limit. But here's the thing. The grace, the favour of God pouring his love into your heart and then you acting out of that is limitless. Absolutely limitless. And it has unlimited potential. In John 17, Jesus says... He says, if you love one another, then the whole world will know because it's limitless. What's going to change the world? The love of Jesus Christ. So you become famous for being so filled or I become famous for being so filled with the love that was in Christ Jesus. That's what will change us and change the world. You can go, you can go to heaven on that. You can, get, you can meet Jesus personally on that. You can have as much of that as you like. There's no limit. And for you or me to say, well, I don't know what I am. I don't know what I'm going to be. I don't know if I'm any use. You can actually have all the abilities, and be nothing. Love is the only limitless, unquenchably valuable miracle. So that's person two. And finally, there's another person. And you're just sitting here saying, well, wait a minute, I'll try and live a pretty good life. I come to church every now and then. I don't even know what you're telling me. What are you saying this morning? There are some of us potentially here who really don't understand the good news of God's love at all. We just don't understand it. We don't get it. Now, I'm not critical of that either because it has to come by revelation. It has to come from God to you. And so that's a thing to ask God for if you're in that situation where you go, wait a minute, I'm trying to understand. I don't even know what you're talking about. Say, God, what is he talking about? What I think Paul's saying to you, if you're like that, is that you can give everything. You can give your body to be burned. You can give all your money to the poor. But what you really have to do is give your heart to Jesus. Lord, just take my heart. Please do something with my heart. This is something James Duff really understands. He really gets this in response 
to the gospel of God's love. The the thing we have to understand about God in Christ and his love to us is just how much it cost God to love us. We have to understand what Jesus sacrificed. See, when Jesus died for us, what he lost was the love of his Father. Now, if any of you who have ever lost the love of someone who your life was built around, if you've ever lost that love, you know about love. Jesus, forsaken, lost the love of his father for us. Now that's love. When you lose that. And you choose to lose that for others. That's love. Love. But the pain in my experience of that or your experience of that is like a pea shooter compared with a nuclear bomb with what he gave up. So if you look at the love of Christ, only his love can explain him. If you look at the love that sent him down here and the love that he lost, it melts you. You don't say, oh, okay, what do I have to do to earn that? Well, you don't say, look, Jesus, I'm really successful. You can have a bit of it. Do you? You just say, oh, Jesus, I don't love you. I don't love you with my whole heart, with my whole soul, with my whole strength. I don't love you with my mind. I don't love people around me. I don't have love anything like the love you have for me. And I see the love that drove you down here. And I see the love that you gave up for me. In other words, love switches us on and takes us away from doing entirely. Love saves us and reprograms us and introduces us to the essence of God, to the essence of Jesus. And the more you see the love he showed, the more you find that love growing in your life. And that's why I'd recommend this for Advent because that's where it will take you in relationship with yourself and God and others. So I'm done. On reflection, by God's grace, I probably don't think I did waste the first 10 years entirely. And here's why. Because simply when I became a Christian, when I came to faith in Jesus, it wasn't through, well, it was a revelation of his love for me. That's what happened. One day he revealed his love for me and his sacrifice for me. I tried to be good and make the grade and get the girl and have the career, but, you know, they just never rang true to me. It felt like I was chasing nothing. That's nothing. I need this other thing. So don't be a noisy gong. Don't give yourself to be burned. It's not necessary. Come to the love that has no ifs, buts or maybes. And let's pray. Pour your spirit, living God, out on your church today. Reveal the love 
of the Father who sent his Son to relinquish love as a price to be paid for us. Jesus, fill us anew with the explosive power of love so sacrificial and so committed as we think about how we use our lives today and what we give our lives to. Help us to see it and bring us to your feet. Help us to repent and turn away from this Corinthianising life to do what we need to do so we can live the lives that we're called to here. Only you can do it and we ask you in faith to do it now in Jesus' name. Amen.